Blackness is a title, is a preoccupation, is a commitment. Blacks are to comprehend and in which you are to perceive your glory. Pee-wee used to carry one of her poems around in his back pocket. The one about being cool. That was before Pee-wee was cool by a cop's warning shot. For the boys and girls who grew, in spite of these things, to be man and woman. A generation robbed of its cacophony is illiterate. And several strengths from drowsiness campaign but spoken single sermon on the workroom. Welcome to Confronting the Warpland, Black Poets of Chicago. I'm Richard Steele. Gwendolyn Brooks is widely recognized as one of the greatest American poets of the 20th century. Her term, Warpland, can be understood as warped land or war land but it's really a metaphor for a society twisted by racism. We'll hear plenty of poetry from Gwendolyn Brooks and from several others, but by no means is this program a comprehensive survey of African-American poets from Chicago. Rather, it's a brief tour of a few writers using poetry to make sense of the African diaspora with views inflected by life in Chicago. Along the way, we'll hear, in their own voices, poets who have made a unique and crucial contribution to African-American literature. But first, let's go back about a hundred years and look at how things got to be the way they are. African-Americans have always been a part of Chicago's cultural and political life. After all, Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable, Chicago's first non-native resident, was African-American. But it wasn't until the early 20th century that the black population grew to significant numbers. Articles in the Chicago Defender began urging blacks to leave the Jim Crow South and move north to Chicago, describing it as a land of opportunity. Jobs were available in Chicago's booming industries. During the first half of the 20th century, thousands of African-American families moved to Chicago to find work in the stockyards, steel mills, and railroads. These newcomers also found their old nemesis, racism. I know why the caged bird sings, ah, me. When his wing is bruised and his bosom sore, when he beats his bars and he would be free, it is not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core, but a plea that upward to heaven he flings. I know why the cage bird sings. That's from Sympathy, written by Paul Lawrence Dunbar in 1899. Dunbar performed in Chicago at the 1893 World Exposition and is the first African-American poet to achieve national acclaim. He's also one of the first to offer a personal expression of life in a society warped by racial intolerance. In Chicago and elsewhere, discriminatory laws restricted blacks' ability to own property and kept the black population within certain neighborhoods. Blacks could make money in Chicago but they weren't welcome to spend it downtown. As a result, the South Side had many thriving, locally-owned businesses. 
first known as the Black Belt and later as Bronzeville. From the 1920s through the 1940s, the south side of Chicago was a hub of African-American cultural and business life. It was during this time that Margaret Walker, who was born in Alabama and spent most of her life in the South, came to Chicago to study at Northwestern University. She later joined the WPA South Side Writers Project and met the novelist Richard Wright, who awakened her political sensibilities and became a lifelong friend. For all my people everywhere, singing their slave songs repeatedly, their dirges and their ditties and their blues and jubilees, praying their prayers nightly to an unknown God, bending their knees humbly to an unseen power. For my people lending their strength to the years, to the gone years and the now years and the maybe years, washing, ironing, cooking, scrubbing, sewing, mending, hoeing, plowing, digging, planting, pruning, patching, dragging along, never gaining, never reaping, never knowing, and never understanding. For My People became Margaret Walker's signature poem. It was first published in Poetry Magazine in 1937, and five years later, it was the title poem in a collection published by the Yale Younger Poets series. Walker was the first African-American to win that award. For the cramped, bewildered years we went to school, to learn to know the reasons why, and the answers too, and the people who, and the places where, and the days when. In memory of the bitter hours when we discovered we were black and poor and small and different, and nobody cared, and nobody wondered, and nobody understood. For the boys and girls who grew, in spite of these things, to be man and woman, to laugh and dance and sing and play and drink their wine and religion and success, to marry their playmates and bear children and then die of consumption and anemia and lynching. Later in her long and prolific career, Margaret Walker published three more volumes of poetry, a novel, Jubilee, based on the slave-era memories of her grandmother, a biography of Richard Wright, and numerous critical essays. She was also continuously active in the civil rights movement, participating in demonstrations and testifying at hearings. Her final public appearance was in 1998 at the Gwendolyn Brooks Writers' Conference at Chicago State University, where she was inducted into the African-American Literary Hall of Fame. For my people, thronging 47th Street in Chicago and Lenox Avenue in New York, and Rampart Street in New Orleans, lost, disinherited, dispossessed, and happy people filling the cabarets and taverns and other people's pockets, needing bread and shoes and milk and land and money and something all our own. For my people standing, staring, trying to fashion a better way from confusion, from hypocrisy and misunderstanding, trying to fashion a world that will hold all the people, all the faces, all the Adams and Eves and their countless generations. Let a new earth rise.
Let another world be born. Let a bloody peace be written in the sky. Let a second generation full of courage issue forth. Let a people loving freedom come to growth. Let a beauty full of healing and the strength of final cleansing be the pulsing in our spirits and our blood. Let the martial songs be written. Let the dirges disappear. Let a race of men now rise and take control. Margaret Walker, reading excerpts from For My People. When black musicians moved from the South to Chicago, they plugged guitars into amplifiers and a new style of music was born. First played in open-air venues like the Maxwell Street Market and later in Southside clubs like the Checkerboard Lounge. Chicago blues became known around the world. I grew up listening to the blues. I can't remember a time in my memory that I didn't know what the blues was. Poet Sterling Plump was born in Mississippi. Like Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, and Willie Dixon before him, he made the journey north to Chicago. It's in my ear. It's, for me, it's in my ear. It's how people sound even when they were not singing the blues. I was uh, initiated in the culture, the folk culture, that the blues take its metaphor from. Let me put it that way. And then I become educated and, and, and see what I, what I can consciously do with it as a poet. In addition to several volumes of poetry, Sterling Plump has written some blues lyrics of his own, including 911, sung here by Willie Kent. I go to the emergency room. Nurse, tell me to explain. I go to the emergency room. Nurse, tell me to explain. I just sang my song. It's a metaphor musically for the kind of uh, odyssey that the African uh, is on towards self-discovery or self-expression in, in this strange land. And so uh, for me, the search is for the individual language that I uh, have spoken in this brief journey here. I think it's still some kind of code to unlock doors that give my spirit access to something that it constantly needs to grow and survive. In a moment, we'll hear some of Sterling Plump's jazz-inspired poetry. But first, here's a bit of his blues-inspired work from a poem called Blues, Not Gonna Hide. 
your blues said. It's not going to hide its face because somebody bothered by its presence. Not going to change its style because somebody shamed by its contours. Not going to cut off its tone because somebody don't want to hear life crying. Not going to commit suicide because somebody can't stand heat in my courts. That's Sterling Plump reading an excerpt from Blue's Not Gonna Hide. I'm essentially a poet trying to find his voice from models of or the examples of the most developed languages uh, that African have constructed in a diaspora and always that model is musical. One of his favorite spots is the Velvet Lounge owned by tenor saxophonist Fred Anderson. Plump calls the Velvet Lounge a shrine to jazz. At the emotional level, for me, it's gospel, negro, spiritual, and blues. And at the intellectual, conscious, craft level, it's always jazz. What I aspired to do was not to imitate what they was doing, but be inspired by the kind of freedom I saw in the most advanced individual voices. It's absolutely essential that they master their craft. I think that the craft side of poetry, I think I take the inspiration from jazz. Because the jazz musician might feed my emotion, but you have to be a very careful craft person. I'm looking at uh, the tenor saxophone as a language giver. And so the tenor saxophone improvisation of people such as Fred Anderson is inspiring uh, what I am attempting to do linguistically. Sterling Plump's collection, Ornate with Smoke, was inspired by many nights at the Velvet Lounge. Remaking a distinguished breakage, the fountain of language discoursing with everyday feet and postures of wings, stem of a tongue rising from debris of a train ornate with smoke, sharp bursts of air signify, a century of silence recoil in 
tender moments you revive. Velvet totems of faces you wear. Ricochet touches. Jamming with masks of iron and thunder tap dancing with rattling feats of rhythm. You have been here before. Cryptic dialogues of alien greeting in chords or slaps on my backwater blues. I drink muddy logic, sleep in a cold train's box cars of innovated ceilings I adjust. I do not need to sign an agreement of unity with a foreign language in order to speak my mother tongue. I got black cat a combs in dreadlocks on the Rubik on off nights. I backstroke to backbeats of handy melodies. I feel and shout, yo, rubber belly of dialects. I name with windows I open with riffs of a good morning glory. I offer no more auction clocks for me. No more auction clocks for me. No more auction clocks for me. I watch my shadow perform at rodeo station of the cross. My dreams rise from membrane of thieves to sing. No more. Auction clocks for me. By the dawn's early light, Henry huffing and puffing to heal some brother inflicted by white rejection but exhibiting symptoms of cancer. I wear a crown propeller on my little finger for good lucky strikes down lanes of white approval. But I fail. I find VJ databases in the rigor voices, do whopping and Motown and highways I travel till the sun rob boats of oarsmen, orchestrate paradigms of high hat blues, talking trash in broken accents of salutation in other galaxies where I staff light years for the good time. I am just the homie, a long ways from my home landlords. I build settlement hospices for old days. Yo, rubber dialect I bring from sounds I heave, yo, rubber language, I sling between rocks I use as pillows. I am just the homie a long ways from home. I am just the homie a long ways from home. Strike a match to hear my sound. Strike a match to hear my sound.
I am broken alone. I am always prism bound. Sterling Plump reading an excerpt from Ornate with Smoke. For many years, Sterling Plump taught at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where Tahimba Jess was one of his students. Jess was also part of the slam poetry scene at the Green Mill in the 1990s. His book, Lead Belly, imagines scenes and conversations from the great blues singer's tumultuous life. This poem, Martha Promise Receives Lead Belly, 1935, is spoken in the voice of his wife, who cared for Lead Belly after his release from Angola prison. When your man comes home from prison, when he comes back like the wound and you are the stitch, when he comes back with pennies in his pocket and prayer fresh on his lips, you got to wash him down first. You got to have the wild weed and tree bark boiled and calmed, waiting for his skin like a shining baptism back into what he was before gun barrels and bars chewed their claim in his hide and spit him stumbling backwards into screaming sunlight. You got to scrub loose the jail time finger smears from ashy skin. Lather down the cuff marks from ankle and wrist. Rinse solitary stench loose from his hair. Scrape curse and confession from the welted and the smooth, the hard and the soft, the furrowed and the lax. You got to hold tight that Shadrach's face between your palms. Take crease and lid and lip and brow and rinse slow with river water. And when he opens his eyes, you tell him, calm and sure, how a woman birthed him back whole again. Tahimba Jess reading his poem, Martha Promise Receives Lead Belly, 1935. You're listening to Confronting the Warpland, Black Poets of Chicago. I'm Richard Steele. I'm done all right. Good morning. How are you? I myself have only tried to uh, record life and, and interpret it as I have seen it. Gwendolyn Brooks may have expressed her intentions in simple terms, but she had a profound effect on the world of poetry and the life that she wrote about was on Chicago's South Side. When I was uh, 15, I remember going to our neighborhood library and finding a book called uh, Caroling Dusk, Caroling Dusk, and it contained the work of uh, the Cotters, uh, Joseph Cotter, uh, Jr. and Sr., and um, Langston Hughes, Sterling Brown, County Cullen, Claude McKay. And it was a delight to me to find that uh, it was not only Paul Lawrence Dunbar who was writing poetry and being published, but all these others. So I thought there was some hope for myself because by that time I, I knew that what I wanted to do was to write poetry. Like the library, young Gwendolyn's house was also full of books, thanks to her parents, with everything from the Harvard classics to contemporary black writers. 
But at school, her literary ambitions weren't exactly encouraged. No, indeed, and there certainly wasn't any emphasis on writing when I was going to school. There was uh, no emphasis on creativity. In fact, when I had a little, in elementary school, when I had a little flair in my compositions, the teacher would say, where did you get that? You must have stolen that. You couldn't have thought of that by yourself. In the early 1930s, at the age of 16, Brooks attended a reading by one of her heroes, Langston Hughes. He came to recite in my uh, family's church. With his ebony hands on each ivory key, he made that poor piano moan with melody, oh, blues, swaying to and fro. And uh, my mother insisted that I take some poems with us. And uh, she wanted me to show them to him, which I did. And he said, you are very talented. Keep writing. Someday you'll have a book published. Hughes also urged her to read modernist poets, especially Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot, and to write as much as possible. While still in school, Brooks contributed nearly 100 poems to the Chicago Defender, the leading voice among African-American newspapers at the time. In the early 1940s, her work began to appear in national magazines, including poetry. Her first book, A Street in Bronzeville, received instant critical acclaim. In it, Brooks demonstrates her mastery of the techniques of modernism, using precise, unsentimental language and telling detail to portray black urban life. In one poem, Kitchenette Building, hopes and dreams are constrained by practical concerns. We are things of dry hours and the involuntary plan. Grayed in and gray, dream makes the giddy sound, not strong like rent, feeding a wife, satisfying a man. But quit a dream, send up through onion fumes, it's white and violet, fight with fried potatoes and yesterday's garbage ripening in the hall, flutter or sing an aria down these rooms, even if we were willing to let it in, had time to warm it, keep it very clean, anticipate a message, let it begin. We wonder, but not well, not for a minute, since number five is out of the bathroom now. We think of lukewarm water, hope to get in it. Gwendolyn Brooks reading Kitchenette Building. Where there was mama in the house, there was paper. Gwendolyn Brooks's daughter, Nora Brooks Blakely, is the artistic director of Chocolate Chips Theater Company in Chicago. And she was, and she was writing, or she was typing, on her uh, manual typewriter. She tried an electric typewriter briefly once. That just did not work out. And she never used a computer. She always used notebooks and manual typewriters. To this day, I can see my mother at the dining room table writing with a bookcase uh, right behind her with the cookie jar and the turtle jar that had papers in it and so forth. Brooks's next book traces the arc of a young black girl becoming a woman. Annie Allen won a Pulitzer Prize for Brooks, she was the first black author to win one. This poem, The Rights for Cousin Vit, is one of the many she wrote that celebrate the flamboyant characters she knew. Vit was really named Verley, and 
She was so full of life, so uh, full of grit and spice and daring that it was hard to imagine her really leaving. So this is my impression as I attended her funeral when her casket was being carried out. Carried her unprotesting out the door. Kit back the casket stand, but it can't hold her. That stuff and satin aiming to enfold her. The lid's contrition nor the bolts before. Oh, oh, too much, too much. Even now, surmise, she rises in the sunshine. There she goes, back to the bars she knew, and they repose in love rooms and the things in people's eyes. Too vital and too squeaking must emerge. Even now, she does the snake hips with a hiss, slops the bad wine across her shantung, talks of pregnancy, guitars, and bridge work, walks in parks or alleys, comes haply on the verge of happiness, haply hysterics, is. Gwendolyn Brooks reading The Rights for Cousin Vint. Her third book of poetry was called The Bean Eaters. I use that title because I've always loved uh, Van Gogh's famous painting, The Potato Eaters, which you've probably seen. And um, I love that title, that name, too. And I said to myself, gee, I wish that I had thought of of, uh, the potato eaters before he did. But then I said to myself, the bean eaters is probably more appropriate for uh, this collection of blacks who are not very rich and uh, they're quite poor, most of them in the book. And uh, it's appropriate because a pound of beans in such a family will go farther than a pound of potatoes. You just add more water. Here's Gwendolyn Brooks reading the title poem from The Bean Eaters. They eat beans mostly, this old yellow pear. Dinner is a casual affair. Plain chipware on a plain and creaking wood. Tin flatware. Two who are mostly good. Two who have lived their day, but keep on putting on their clothes and putting things away. And remembering, remembering with twinklings and twinges as they lean over the beans in their rented back room that is full of beads and receipts and dolls and cloths, tobacco crumbs, vases, and fringes. I wish I could read that last line as fast as it ought to be read so that you get an immediate impression of a room with a lot of stuff in it. (laughs) Gwendolyn Brooks reading The Bean Eaters. In writing your poem... Tell the truth as you know it. Tell your truth. Don't try to sugar it up. Don't force your poem to be nice or proper 
or normal or happy if it does not want to be. Remember that poetry is life distilled. Midway through her career, issues surrounding race in America became more urgent in Brooks's writing. In 1963, she began a series of university teaching jobs, which put her in touch with a new generation of writers. In 1967, she attended the second Black Writers' Conference at Fisk University. The young poets that I met then had as a motto, Black poetry is poetry written by blacks, about blacks, to blacks. Throughout her work, Brooks had been looking hard at race and violence, A Street in Bronzeville includes a poem about a lynching, and The Bean Eaters has two poems on the murder of Emmett Till. But the events of the late 1960s brought a new intensity to her views. When Martin Luther King was assassinated, riots broke out in many places in the country, in Los Angeles, Detroit, Chicago, other places. And a riot is certainly a temptation to any poet's pen. And I got my particular inspiration for my particular riot poem when I saw a half-page photograph of young rioters coming down our Madison Street in Chicago. And it occurred to me to wonder how a young white liberal or an old white liberal would respond to such a confrontation, such an announcement. And I named my liberal John Cabot. I have under my title something that was frequently said by Martin Luther King. A riot is the language of the unheard. Here's Gwendolyn Brooks reading Riot. A riot is the language of the unheard. John Cabot, out of Wilma, once a Wycliffe, all white blue rose below his golden hair, wrapped richly in right linen and right wool, almost forgot his jaguar and light bluff, almost forgot Grantilly, which is the best thing that ever happened to Scotch, almost forgot the sculpture at the Richard Gray and Distelheim, the kidney pie at Maxim's, the Grenadine de Buffet Mazoanry, because The Negroes were coming down the street because the poor were sweaty and unpretty, not like two dainty Negroes in Winnetka, and they were coming toward him in rough ranks, in seas, in windsweep. They were black and loud and not detainable and not discreet. Gross, gross, Ketue Grossier, John Cabot itched instantly beneath the nourished white that told his story of glory to the world. Don't let it touch me. The blackness, Lord, he whispered to any handy angel in the sky. But in a thrilling announcement, on it drove and breathed on him and touched him. In that breath, the fume of pigfoot chitterling and cheat chili malign mocked John, and in terrific touch, all diverted doubt, 
jerked forward decently, cried, Cabot, John, you are a desperate man, and the desperate die expensively today. John Cabot went down in the smoke and fire and broken glass and blood, and he cried, Lord, forgive these niggas that know not what they do. Gwendolyn Brooks reading Riot. By 1968, Brooks was an established public figure. She was appointed Poet Laureate of Illinois and frequently gave readings and workshops. While she was embraced by the white literary establishment, Brooks was increasingly drawn to the black arts movement and its emphasis on political action and social engagement. Not a great deal happened to the poetry. You might be surprised to have me say that. But what happened to me was uh, spiritual (laughs) Uh, and social. These people knew a lot about what was happening in the society. I was an optimist, and I still am by way of being an optimist, but I was a complete optimist then. And I thought that if blacks were nice enough and... um, uh, proper enough and all that stuff, everything would turn out okay. Well, these young people that I met in those times, uh, 67, 68, would have none of that kind of attitude. They felt that uh, um, their address should be to themselves. They felt that uh, blacks had so much to say to each other, and um, that's what they were about the business of doing. A Negro English instructor called her a fine Negro poet. A white critic says she's a credit to the Negro race. One of the younger poets Gwendolyn Brooks met was Haki Madabudi, founder of Third World Press. Into the 60s, a word was born, black. And with black came poets. And from the poets' ballpoints came black, double black. Purple black, blue black, been black, was black day before yesterday. Here's an excerpt from one of several poems Madhubuti wrote in dedication to Gwendolyn Brooks. I just discovered black, Negro black, unsubstance black. And everywhere the lady Negro poet appeared, the poets were there. They listened and questioned and went home feeling uncomfortable, unsound, and so untogether. They read and reread, wrote and rewrote, and came back the next time to tell the lady Negro poet how beautiful she was, is, and how she had helped them. And she came back with how necessary they were and how they helped her. The poets walked, and a space filled the vacuum between them and the lady Negro poet. You hear one of the black poets say, bruh, they've been calling that sister by the wrong name. We did such exciting things. And we went out in the park and recited our poetry, and we went to city jail, and the most exciting thing we did was to just walk into a tavern, some seven or eight of us, and someone like Haki Madhubuti, once known as Don L. Lee, would say, Look, folks, we're going to lay some poetry on you. And it was interesting how we were received in these places. I mean, some people say, they must be crazy. You know, they mind. And they would turn from their drinks temporarily and listen to poetry, which they had not come into the tavern to hear, of course. You must understand that during this period, all of us were community-minded, and we were, we, you know, activist poets, political poets, cultural poets, and we felt that the, wor- the words that we were writing needed to be shared and tested. 
Which brings us to Gwendolyn Brooks's most famous poem, written earlier and published in The Bean Eaters. A poem like uh, my own uh, short, We Real Cool, would be the kind of thing that I could read in such an atmosphere. We real cool, the pool players, seven at the golden shovel. We real cool, we left school, we lurk late, we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz june, we die soon. Gwendolyn Brooks reading We Real Cool. Despite its popularity, this poem has actually been banned. Because of the word jazz, which some people have considered a sexual reference, that was not my intention, though I have no objection if it helps anybody. But I was thinking of music. My uh, supreme operating word for myself and others is kindness. I believe that if whites uh, are interested in kindness, they will automatically do much of what is right toward blacks. And they can help matters along by not being silent in their own midst when wrongs are being um, perpetrated or uttered. But kindness wasn't a panacea for Brooks. Nora Brooks Blakely, Gwendolyn Brooks's daughter, says the poem The Sermon on the Warpland reflects her mother's belief in the necessity of taking action. Although she felt that it was not one of the easier poems to read, it was one of the poems that she definitely read frequently in her readings around the country. That that definitely speaks to who she was and uh, what she felt about, you know, that if there was something that you didn't like, that you should move forward and change it. Here's The Sermon on the Warpland by Gwendolyn Brooks. The Sermon on the Warpland. The fact that we are black is our ultimate reality, said Ron Karanga. And several strengths from drowsiness campaigned, but spoke in single sermon on the Warpland, and went about the Warpland saying, No, my people, black and black, revile the river. Say that the river turns, and turn the river. Say that our something in double pod contains seeds, for the coming hell and health together. Prepare to meet, sisters, brothers, the brash and terrible weather, the pains, the bruising, the collapse of bestials, idols. But then, oh then, the stuffing of the halls, the seasoning of the perilously sweet, the health, the heralding of the clear obscure. Build now your church, my brothers, sisters. Build never with brick nor corten, nor with granite. Build with lithe love, with love like lion eyes, with love like morning rise, with love like black, our black, luminously indiscreet, complete, continuous, 
Gwendolyn Brooks reading the Sermon on the Warpland. How do we celebrate a poet who has created music with words for over 50 years, who has showered magic on her people, who has redefined poetry into a black world exactness, thereby giving the universe an insight into dark roads? Haki Marabudi reading from Quality, Gwendolyn Brooks at 73. Life after seven decades plus three years is a lot of breathing. Gwendolyn, Gwen, Sister G, has not disappointed our anticipations. In the middle of her eldership, she brings us vigorous language, memory, illumination. She brings breath. Two excerpts from Quality, Gwendolyn Brooks at 73, a poem from the book Heart Love. Besides writing over two dozen books, Haki Marabudi is also a publisher. In 1967, he started Third World Press, using $400 to buy a mimeograph machine. Since then, it's grown into a multi-million dollar publishing house devoted to the work of African-American writers and scholars. It's not the kind of success he might have expected early in life. You know, I said grew up around pimps and holes, Simon Cadillac, those on the Lower East Side, Detroit, Michigan, West Side, Chicago. When he was 14, his mother asked him to get a new book by Richard Wright from the library. Black boy had hit the market, and everybody was talking about it. And my mother asked me to go to the Detroit Public Library to check the book out, and I refused because I didn't want to go to a white library and request a book with black in the title authored by a black man criticizing white America because I was ashamed of being black. Being raised in apartheid America and showing how the educational system was very effective in teaching us how to hate ourselves. But my mother persisted, and I went to the, the library and found a book on a shelf and put it to my chest and walked in on people's section of the library and sat down and began to read. And for the first time in my 14 years, I was reading literature that was not an insult to my own personhood. Words and sentences and paragraphs about me, about us. I read half the book in the library at that time, that day, checked the book out, and finished the book in less than 24 hours. That's how that literature had affected me. So I gave the book to my mother the next day, and then I went back to the library and checked everything that Richard Wright had published out. And that started my journey with literature. The journey has taken Matabuti throughout the U.S. and to many parts of the world, where he's in demand as a poet and scholar on African-American literature. He's also made many trips to Africa. He has the highest regard for African people and culture. But the slaughter in Rwanda shocked him and inspired this poem. Rwanda, where tears have no power. Who has the moral high ground? Fifteen blocks from the White House on small corners in northwest D.C., boys disguised as men rip each other's hearts out with weapons made in China. They fight for territory. Across the planet, in a land where civilization was born, the boys of D.C. know nothing about their distant relatives in Rwanda. They have never heard of the Hutu or Tutsi people. Their eyes draw blanks at the mention of Kugali, Boyambi, and Bateri. All they know are the streets of D.C. and do not cry at funerals anymore. Numbers and frequencies have a way 
of making murder commonplace and not news, unless it spreads outside of our house block territory. Modern massacres are intra-ethnic, Bosnia, Sri Lanka, Burundi, Nagorno-Karabakh, Iraq, Lagos, Angola, Liberia, and Rwanda are small foreign names on a map made in Europe. When bodies by the tens of thousands float down a river turning the water the color of blood, as a quarter of a million people flee barefooted into Tanzania and Zaire, somehow we notice. We do not smile. We have no more tears. We hold our thoughts in deeply muted silence looking south and thinking that today Nelson Mandela seemed much larger than he is. Haki Marabudi, reading Rwanda, where tears have no power. When the sun comes back and the first quail calls, follow Koresh Ali Lansana teaches at Chicago State University. His first book of poetry, South Side Rain, is based in contemporary Chicago. But in They Shall Run, Harriet Tubman poems, he looks back to the most shameful era of American history and brings to life the great liberator Harriet Tubman. This poem concerns Tubman's first trip back to Maryland, a slave state, two years after she had escaped to the north, leaving her husband behind. No one knew she was coming, and no one knew where she had gone. She did not tell uh, her mother that she was leaving. She did not tell her brothers um, because she'd learned that they were going to be sold south as a family uh, on a chain gang. Um, And she did not tell her husband, whose name was John Tubman. This was her first of many trips south to help others find their way to freedom. And so she made her first trip back to get John. She made her first trip back for love. The poem is called Long Way Home, and it's in the voice of Harriet Tubman. John, Lord knows you still vexed. Reckon me too if my wife stole off during sleepy night. God and the devil only souls up at that hour. Even if I know she's about to be sold south, even if I knows she was leaving, and you did. You so troubled when I talk about leaving. Call me a fool. Call me could Joe. Five years with you, John. Your wife about to be sold away just cause you free. This don't worry you none. You laugh. Don't know if I'd miss your laugh if I was in the South, though. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. Got a room in Philadelphia, John. Ain't big, but clean. Enough room for us. Some cheering, too. Yo, baby, I ain't too old just yet. Just round 31, I think. Make us a home, John. One where we's both free. Free from the lashes shadow, free like the Lord mean. Got this suit for you, John. Ain't nobody worn these clothes before. Walk proud in these clothes. These 
is free man's clothes. Harriet Tubman made it to the outskirts of the plantation and sent a messenger in to get John. What she learned is that during the course of those two years, John Tubman had made other plans. The next poem is called Faithless. It's in the voice of John Tubman, but it begins with one of Harriet's more famous quotes. I would have freed thousands more if they had known they were slaves. Faithless. Heard on the wind you come back for me. Didn't think you come back for me. Didn't think you come back at all. Been so long my skin grew tired. This life too hard to know all alone. Caroline cover me just fine. She a quilt against the cold in my blood. She mend the torn spots in my soul. Ain't got no mind to leave this place. Go on, Moses, find your promised land. Mines is here beside this fire, with folks we knows from when we's born. When Harriet learned that John had remarried, she was heartbroken. Two years is a long time, and you know we have to remember that during this this moment in American history, Africans disappeared every day. So she didn't he didn't know whether or not she was dead or alive, and um, if she were alive, why she'd come back, you know, to Maryland. But um, that didn't make her feel any better. She she had come back for him, and she was devastated, and she put that heartache and that energy into what we know as significant American history. The last poem called Whole, H-O-L-E, is in Harriet's voice. This suit of clothes just as empty as a sky with no stars. Two years of working, saving money. Then, John, drop out my heart. I don't want to see his wife. I knows that she is me. I could go in, shooting the rifle, let my angry run free. Best not. Just my temper rising. No use stoking dead fire. But to see his face one more time. Now, Lord, just you on high. If he make do without me now, I can make do, Lord. I can make do. For the old man is a waiting for can you free Ali Lansana reading three poems from his book They Shall Run Harriet Tubman Poems Now let's go out with Gwendolyn Brooks reading A Song in the Front Yard a poem about the desire to go beyond the routine boundaries of one's life. A Song in the Front Yard I've stayed in the front yard all my life. I want to peek at the back, where it's rough and untended, and hungry weed grows. A girl gets sick of a rose. I want to go in the backyard now, and maybe down the alley, to where the charity children play. I want a good time today. They do some wonderful things. They have some wonderful fun. 
My mother sneers, but I say it's fine how they don't have to go in at quarter to nine. My mother, she tells me that Johnny May will grow up to be a bad woman, that George will be taken to jail sooner or late. On account of last winter, he sold our back gate. But I say it's fine, honest I do, and I'd like to be a bad woman too, and wear the brave stockings of night black lace and strut down the streets with paint on my face. Gwendolyn Brooks reading A Song in the Front Yard. Confronting the Warpland, Black Poets of Chicago is a production of the Poetry Foundation. During this brief program, we've heard just a few of the many creative, diverse voices among African-American writers, poets, and scholars of Chicago. Please continue the journey on your own. You can hear more from these and other poets in the Chicago Poetry Tour, an audio tour featuring poetry from and about the city. Later this spring, it will be available to download for free at poetryfoundation.org. I'm Richard Steele. Thanks for listening. This program was written and produced by Ed Herman for the Poetry Foundation with editorial assistance from Curtis Fox. Anne Halsey is media coordinator for the Poetry Foundation. Thanks to Chicago Public Radio for providing recording facilities. Much of the music in this program is from Delmark Records, recording Chicago blues and jazz for over 50 years. Portions of the Gwendolyn Brooks interview come from Poems to a Listener, produced by Henry Lyman at WFCR in 1980. Special thanks to Sourcebooks, the Academy of American Poets, Cadman Audio, and the estate of Gwendolyn Brooks for the audio recordings of Gwendolyn Brooks, and to Juneteenth Productions for the recording of Margaret Walker. Thanks also to Third World Press, Tiachucha Press, Wave Books, and Oxford University Press. Funding was provided by the Poetry Foundation. At poetryfoundation.org, you can hear and read many other great poets and find out more about the poetry in this program. The Poetry Foundation also publishes Poetry Magazine, a monthly magazine published in Chicago since 1912. From the Poetry Foundation, thanks for listening.